0: Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the best-selling author and historian Alison Weir, who's recently completed her six-novel series on the wives of Henry VIII, with a book exploring the story of the Tudor King's final queen, Catherine Parr. Emma Slatterley-Williams, staff writer at BBC History Revealed, spoke to Alison to find out more.
1: So, today I'm talking to best-selling historical novelist Alison Weir. Thanks for joining me, Alison. Thanks, Emma. So, your final book in the Sixth Tudor Queen series is Catherine Parr, the Sixth Wife, and explores the life of Henry VIII's final queen, Catherine Parr. Many know her as the one who survived, but what do you think makes her an interesting character? She
2: had four lives, more or less. She had four marriages, and a lot of people don't realize that. They only think of the last two marriages, which are the ones that as we say, made the headlines. Um, But I think that there are many things that shaped Catherine. She published three books, which was the first woman in England to publish a book, which is an incredible feat at that time. Uh, She lives on the cusp of the English Reformation and she embraces the Protestant faith when it's it's considered heretical to do so and she runs the risk of being burned at the stake and she has a, a very close brush with death during Henry VIII's reign. So I think she's, she's a fascinating character because she married three times for duty or pragmatism. And, and for the fourth time, she actually married for love. And that all went rather downhill rather quickly. So there's a lot of drama in her life, a lot of su- su- uh, t- tension and suspense. And uh, she trod quite a dangerous path, particularly when she married Henry VIII, because she was in love with another man that had to be kept secret. And her religious beliefs had to be kept secret. Um, so she was literally in a very precarious situation. Now, I think she's a feisty heroine and she's a, she's very, all, she comes across as very human and that's because we got her voice. Whereas we, with, same with Catherine of Aragon, we have so many letters like Catherine Parr, uh, we, we understand her hopes and her fears and her emotions. With Anne Boleyn, we've hardly anything. And so a lot of our, that's why Anne Boleyn is very enigmatic and why she endlessly fascinates because we don't know her. She's not knowable in the way these other wives are. Same with Jane Seymour.
1: So as you just mentioned, she'd uh, she was she'd been widowed twice when she married Henry and she was 31 when she married Henry. So what was her life before she became queen?
2: Well, she was, she was the daughter of, um, of Sir Thomas Parr, who had lots of links to the northern nobility. And she, her mother was Maud Green, who served Catherine of Aragon. And Maud Green was a very learned woman. After she left Catherine's service, she actually ran a, you know, an aristocratic school in which she tutored her own children and also the children of relations. Um, she was uh, she was a great inspiration to Catherine. And um, she arranged a marriage for her. She tried to get a marriage for her with Lord Scroop of Bolton, but that didn't come about. Uh, So she managed to get a marriage with the the heir of Lord Burr of Gainsborough Old Hall in Lincolnshire. He was very young and he probably wasn't very well. It's it's debatable whether this marriage was consummated, but he died quite early. And uh, Catherine, we don't quite know what happened to her then, but she probably went to stay up at Sizer Castle with a relative who may have introduced her to John Neville, Baron Latimer. And she married Lord Latimer. It was a marriage of mutual interests and they seemed to have been reasonably happy. But marrying him got her swept up in one of the greatest crises of Henry VIII's reign, the Pilgrimage of Grace, in which the North East arose um, uh, in defence of the traditional religion that was being swept away by the Reformation Parliament. And Lord Latimer was press-ganged literally into joining the rebels or the pilgrims, as they called themselves. And at one point... Catherine is besieged, and she's kept under house arrest by the rebels at Snape Castle, which was his seat. And it was, and they threatened, they threatened him that if he didn't, if he didn't sort of help help them out, he would kill, he would that they would kill his wife and children. So it's 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 a pretty dramatic, you know, story. There's a whole backstory here that doesn't even touch her marriage to Henry VIII.
1: So, what was her education like in the book? You suggest that she's a mu- has a much better education than many girls of her time.
2: Yes, she did, and because her mother was extremely erudite, obviously had fast, for, forward-thinking parents, and um, so her mother made sure that Catherine got a very comprehensive education—not just her, but her brother William and her sister Anne—and they, they were they were the, they received almost a classical education.
1: So you mentioned there her mother um, in the book. Um, you discuss how her mother was close with Catherine of Aragon, Henry's first wife, and that I think uh, Catherine of Aragon was Catherine Parr's godmother?
2: Probably. We don't know that for certain, but the choice of name Catherine, the fact that Maud Green was in Catherine of Aragon's service at that time, strongly suggests it.
1: So um, how do you think that Catherine Parr would have felt about how the First Queen was treated by Henry, given that her mother was so close to her. She would probably
2: have followed her mother's lead on this, because her mother stayed with Catherine of Aragon, uh, serving her, even after Catherine had been exiled from court and um, so did Catherine's sister Anne but at some point Anne left to serve Anne Boleyn. Her mother was dead by then. So I do think that um, Kath- you know, Catherine initially would have, her sympathies would have lain with Queen Catherine but of course you had to be very careful about expressing that and she was very young at the time and uh, so I think um, and we we do find that when she marries um, Edward Borough, his father Lord Borough it has very strong reformist views. Now, I'm not—we're not calling them Protestant views, but there was a huge movement in England at that time for reform of the Catholic Church, and so he was a—he was staunch reformist and made his views plain. So, there's one influence on her. Another influence may have been the behaviour of the, the Catholic pilgrims um, who, or who, you know, who rebelled against the king. Their treatment of her may have. Helped to alienate her in some way from the Catholic faith or forms of practice. Uh, so we don't exactly know when she when she made that um, conversion, um, but she certainly was involved with people who were reformists and some who were closet Protestants.
1: Yes, you mentioned um, in the book about her reformist views, and there was um, there was a plot against her and she associated with many reformists. How much danger was she in due to her views while she was married to the king? A
2: lot of danger because the law required that heresy was punished by burning at the stake. You were allowed one one go at recanting, and if you relapsed after that, that was it. The pan, pen, penalty was mandatory. And um, Catherine had a lot of enemies because she represented the reformists at court. You could openly be a reformist because you weren't questioning Catholic doctrine or rather the Catholic doctrine laid down by Henry VIII. Um, so she was associated with the reformists at court and there was a very strong Catholic party who would like to have brought her down and have a Catholic queen at court. Um, so she had enemies at court who were on the on the, on the lookout for any any slips. And they, the, she and her ladies were under suspicion because several of them were secret Protestants they had secret books um, hidden away or banned books hidden away in their apartments and at some stage they must have got rid of them they tried very hard to establish a link between Catherine and the heretic Anne Askew who was burned at the stake in 1546 Um, but they couldn't they tortured Anne Askew to make her reveal such a link but she didn't give away anything there are links between Catherine's family and the Strickland and and the Askew's. Um, Sir William Askew appealed to Catherine for help during the Pilgrimage of Grace and they lived not far away in Lincolnshire when she was married to Edward Borough but that's as far as it goes. There is no um, overt evidence, no concrete evidence that she had anything to do with Anne Askew Um, but she may, I've got this scene in the book where Anne Askew does visit her and she tries to get rid of her very quickly. So just to go back and answer your question, yes, she was in danger, great danger, um, because it got to the stage where um, an arrest warrant was issued to have her questioned and her ladies questioned. And the warrant was fortuitously dropped in a gallery and someone found it and took it to the Queen, whereupon she went into, she she panicked, as you can imagine, and uh, started screaming and screaming. And and it, it actually brought the king to her. And then she managed to, um, she was warned about, she was warned about it. I think Henry did it to test her. I think he also did it to warn her. I don't think it's as clear cut as one might think. She managed to, in the end, to bring him around, you know, to, 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 to mollify him and uh, tell him that her, her disputing with him, which had caused all this upset, um, was only to divert him from his pain. And because as a woman and because he was the head of the church, she wanted to learn from him. And she, she was sort of asking, basically sort of challenging him to tell her things she needed to know. So uh, for a very clever diplomacy, she, she got around him.
1: So you believe she was quite close to maybe becoming the third of his wives yes, to be executed?
2: I think she was. Who knows what would have happened had she had that arrest warrant being put into, into effect and she had been questioned. I think she was quite a clever woman and I think she might have um, outwitted her, her interrogators. But whether the king would intervene, I don't know. He intervened on Cranmer's behalf. He knew Cranmer. He said, he said to Cranmer once, Cranmer's enemies were, Archbishop Cranmer was a secret Protestant and his enemies were uh, gathering to destroy him. And the king went out with a boat with him on the Thames and said, you think, you think I don't know who's the greatest heretic in Kent? The same principle may have applied with Catherine Parr.
1: So you convey very well in the book the idea of Catherine following, in the, the, following the fates and in the footsteps of her predecessors. How do you think she felt at the prospect of becoming the king's sixth wife?
2: She didn't want to become the king's sixth wife. It's quite clear. She and Thomas Seymour had already made, made, agreed to marry by this time i mean henry and thomas Seymour uh, pursued her at the same time i think seymour just a little bit before the king and and they and she was in love with seymour and she had to she she, she had to make a very very difficult decision because one didn't um uh, easily refuse the king but also she she took refuge in prayer and sought divine guidance and she felt that god was calling her to aid the cause of reform religion in england that she thought she might do a lot of good in that respect and that is why uh, that was what turned her mind and she she realised that her duty was clear so she accepted the king and I do think that they had apart from this one episode they had a pretty happy marriage
1: Was there much scope to say no to the king? Um, well, Anne Boleyn did. <laughs> but that's quite
2: a few years earlier before Henry became head of the church and became um, uh, assured of his own divinity and his own authority. Um, he was a far sterner character in, in 1543 than he had been in the 1520s.
1: So, it, like you said, in the book, they have quite a quite a good relationship, um, Henry and Catherine. Did she have much influence over him?
2: Yes, I think she did, and uh, he 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 relied on her judgment so much that he he named her regent of England when he when he went to France to to war in fifteen forty four.
1: And uh, what was her relationship like with the king's children? She managed to persuade Henry to uh, change the act of su- succession.
2: Well, she may have been instrumental in that. I mean, in a novel, we are, you, you know, you can't just say the evidence suggests. You, in a novel, you have to come down one way or another, so I've gone down that way. But in reality, it's very likely that it was her influence that, that was behind that, as, 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 but not the only factor, but because Henry needed to uh, ensure the succession. And um, she got on generally very well with Edwards, with Henry's children, and um, they thought they, they very highly of her until after he died and she married Thomas Seymour with what was thought to be scandalous speed. Um, Mary was absolutely shocked and uh, there was a falling out, although later she and Catherine came to, you know, they, you know, they made it up more or less. Um, Elizabeth, Mary told Elizabeth, you know, to avoid Catherine like the plague. She shouldn't be tainted with this scandal. But Elizabeth um, had made her own decision. She was already living with Catherine and she wanted to um, she wanted to stay there. So she dissembled, as Elizabeth usually did, and she stayed there. Um, with disastrous results. And Edward thought, clearly thought highly of his stepmother. And because Thomas Seymour born the young king, Edward sort of hero worshiped this uncle. Um he he virtu- Edward virtually he got he got Edward to the point where he virtually commanded Seymour to marry Catherine. And that's how they got, they got round it when they actually told Seymour's brother, the Law Protector. The king had commanded this. What could what could the Law Protector say? But he wasn't very
1: pleased. So was Catherine. Popular as a queen with the people,
2: yes, she was. There isn't a lot of evidence, but the the small evidence we have is that yes, she was popular. She didn't have a coronation for she didn't have a procession in a ceremonial entry into London or anything like that because um, because Henry wasn't doing that with queens at this stage. So there aren't there aren't the records of crowds gathering to see her that we have for earlier queens.
0: still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: Yes, I mean, the Victorians liked to portray her very much as Henry's nurse. You know, there was no expectation of heirs, you know. And, and uh, she had this image of her, you know, dressing his wound, his, his ulcerous legs and, and, and sitting on a footstool by him, basically. She was far more than that. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring... Need to hire?
1: You need indeed. One thing that I was thinking about while I was reading the book is that the king wanted more sons. Was Catherine a strange choice, given that she'd been married twice and had had no children?
2: I think so, yes, because there's no evidence of any pregnancies. And I think he genuinely liked her for herself. But it does seem a triumph of, um, you know, of optimism over, you know, whatever, you know, experience. But, but um, he may have reasoned that her first husband had been very young, perhaps the marriage hadn't been consummated, um, or he was sickly, and her second husband—I I don't know why he, what his reasoning was, because certainly he did want children from this marriage.
1: So, what happened to her after Henry's death?
2: Right, but she made this rapid marriage to Thomas Seymour, and for a time all seemed well. But unknown to her, well, not not for not for long, it was unknown to her. But Seymour started to make advances towards Elizabeth, who was then um, fourteen years old, and. Uh, he would come into her bedchamber in the morning and tickle her and make you know sort of leap at her in the bed and slapped her on the bottom. And uh, her, her governess, Cat Astley, uh, was quite horrified. And eventually she told Catherine and Catherine makes nothing of it. She joins Seymour on some of these occasions. On one occasion, when they're in a garden, um, Elizabeth's wearing her black mourning dress for Henry VIII. And Catherine, it's a romp, Catherine holds Elizabeth while Seymour takes shears and cuts this gown to ribbons while Elizabeth's wearing it. And Elizabeth rushes indoors in tears and her governess um, is absolutely scandalised by it and complains to the Queen. And uh, nothing Catherine does can make Seymour stop this because he's adamant this is all good harmless fun and that is the way she affects to see it or we think she affected to see it maybe she was perturbed but then came um, they were they were about to go to move to Sudley Castle Catherine was pregnant we're in 1548 now and she came upon them when Elizabeth was in Seymour's arms and that changed everything. She realised she was in loco parentis. This girl was a, was a princess of the realm. Her marriage was in the gift of the king and the council. Uh, she couldn't have her virtue compromised. So she sent Elizabeth away to live with um, Cat Ashley's sister and her husband. And um, the, the cracks were papered over in, in letters in their relationship. And she and Seymour went to Soodley. And they too, they made, you know, she, she, she tried to put it behind her. But she had a baby um, late in August, and she died on the 7th of September in childbirth, probably from puerperal fever. And when she lay on her deathbed, she and Seymour was lying down with her, holding her. And she said to him, you've, my Lord, you've given me many shrewd taunts. So it was clearly still in her mind. So it's a very sad ending to her story.
1: Yes, it is. Uh, what, what sources uh, did you use to research her life then? What, what is there written down about Catherine?
2: Numerous Numerous sources. Um, There are record. There are her own writings. There's a huge volume of her own writings that's been published. Not just her published books, one of which was published anonymously, but also many letters and and you know writings people wrote about her. Um, She she was quite prolific, and there are also state papers. There's also all the diplomatic records, there and chronicle evidence. There is a lot. When you put it all together, you can make quite a hefty biography.
1: So you mentioned that she was published herself could you tell me a bit about her the books that she wrote
2: they were religious tracts and the first one was called prayers uh, the first one was published anonymously, as a book of prayers and and some of her prayers were put to music by thomas tallis for this was in the lead up to the king's war with france and she the prayers were for the king's safety you know for you know driving out you know sort of you know, the, the wreaking vengeance on the french and everything and some of these were put to music and sung at the service of you know into session at st paul's cathedral before the king departed second book is prayers and meditations and again it's a religious tract it is literally what it says it is and the third book published after henry's death was lamentations of a sinner and in in these she 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 really Puts forward her views, not obviously the Protestant views, but she sails quite close to the wind. And by of course, Edward's reign, England had turned Protestant, so she was able to, um, you know, to, to, to be more forthright. But she she she's very much with the royal supremacy, with the king as head of the church, and she sees him as a pharaoh, as as, as a a second Moses leading leading the Israelites out of Egypt, away from Pharaoh, and he—I mean, it's you know, laudatory in regard to Henry VIII, as of course it would have been written in his reign.
1: So, how unusual was it for her to be published both as a woman and as a queen?
2: Very. I mean, there, there, no woman had been published in England before, and queens were supposed to have a more decorative role. They didn't really have a voice. So, for Catherine to speak out is is a it's, it, it's an, an indication of how religious views were taking over. That, that, I mean, up to the Reformation, everybody more or less had the same view, except isolated cases of what was called Lollardy, which is a precursor of the Protestant faith. But when, queens did not speak out in their own right, and because in the Reformation views became polarized, it was thought that Henry must have thought that her publishing her views would have lent weight to his Reformation and his his religious policies.
1: So, are there any misconceptions you think we have about Catherine Parr? Yes, I mean the
2: Victorians liked to portray her very much as Henry's nurse. You know, there was no expectation of heirs. You know, and and uh, she had this image of her. You know, dressing his wound, his, his ulcerous legs, and 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 sitting on a footstool by him. Basically, she was far more than that. And uh, she was, and she. There is a there is one record of her sitting with his leg in her lap, but a queen would not have dressed his legs. Absolutely in no way. And also there's some, um, there, there has been a misconception that it was she who devised the classical educations of his children. Now I'm sure she had some input, but the ultimate decision was Henry's.
1: So since writing the six novels, has your opinion on any of the wives changed?
2: Yes, I published a biography in uh, 1991, Six Wives of Henry VIII, and I've completely researched and rewritten that um, f- for the for the Six Tudor Queen series, and it's been my 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 literally the, it's the back the back script for for the novels, and it's uh, I, for Catherine of Aragon. A lot of research on the canon law around the divorce and it is, or the annulment as it should be called, the King's Great Matter, that marriage was valid. And Henry got it all wrong. Everybody thinks that everything hinged upon uh, whether or not Catherine's marriage to Arthur had been consummated. That was irrelevant. The crucial point was, had she borne Arthur children? That's why everybody was at such pains to know if she was pregnant after 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 Arthur died. And so as she hadn't borne Arthur children, Henry, she could safely marry Henry. And that's why the Pope issued a dispensation and so Catherine knew this Catherine knew that this was the case Henry went right down the wrong street and as you know he caused a religious revolution as a result so that's Catherine of Aragon and I tend to look at that through that perspective Um, Anne Boleyn I find her generally historically an, an unsympathetic character although one has to admire her bravery uh, and, and, on the scaffold uh, and, and also after her arrest. And also one has to admire um, her agency in bringing about the Reformation. She's not the only one who brought it about, but she was very, very influential. And for a woman at that time, that's quite remarkable. Um, but I, looking at trying to write the book from her point of view, only from her point of view, gave me a more sympathetic insight um, Jane Seymour it's hard to you could go two ways with Jane Seymour and I i, I chose to go around the, the the nicer route put it like that Anna cleves I think there is something there some secret in the background hovering over her and I made a lot of that in the book <laughs> there's even an illegitimate child um, but, uh, but but because there's this one or two things in one or two sources that indicate that um, she wasn't quite as virtuous as she made out and Catherine Howard, um, I think she was older than a lot of people think, and that I originally thought she was probably about nineteen or twenty when she married the king. And I and I, I think that you know she should have been more responsible. I think she was not just uh, someone who was used by others, but someone who actually made quite a few of her own choices. So I've you know got slightly different views of all the wives from writing from writing these novels.
1: Yeah. So why do you think we are fascinated with Henry, Henry VIII's six wives? Gosh, I
2: mean, you can't make it up. A king who marries six times, has two wives beheaded, divorces three, and he's got this eternal quest for a son. And the relationships he has with his wives, it's, it's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And it's also, this is a period for which we have the first really detailed sources about the private lives of monarchs. Go back 50 years earlier to Richard III's reign, and you've hardly got anything on the private life of a monarch. So we've got that. We've got a great visual record for this period. We've got the portraits of Holbein. We can imagine what these people look like. We've got the remains of the most magnificent palaces, Hampton Court, for example. And with with the spread of diplomacy, uh, this is an age in which it literally burgeons you've got um, ambassadors who are fascinated by Henry VIII's uh, great matter and from then on no detail of of royal private lives is is too trivial to be overlooked so you've got a wealth of information.
1: So are there any locations you'd recommend someone visiting if they wanted to um, get more of a feel for Catherine Parr? A
2: lot of the locations are not there anymore. I mean, Snape Castle is privately owned, which is very sad. Gainsborough Old Hall, you could go to. She lived there for a time, um, but then she moved to to a manor house, and and that's that, that's no longer there. And uh, so Snape Castle is is there, but it can you can't visit it. Sizer Castle, we don't actually know she was there. And her, the her husband, Latimer's London House in Charterhouse Square is no longer there either. So sadly, I mean, you're you're left with the royal palaces, and Hampton Court is probably the best because she was married to Henry there in the Queen's Chapel.
1: Is there anything else about Catherine Parr you think we haven't discussed? Uh, well, I think there are two very interesting
2: um, aspects to Catherine Parr's story, and they're literally posthumous. One is that she bore a do- Seymour a daughter, Mary Seymour. And there's been endless debate as to what happened to this, this child now. All the evidence suggests she died young. She was looked after by the Duchess of Suffolk and suddenly all the sources stop. All the, there's no more mention of her after about two years. and But Agnes Strickland, who wrote her Lives the Queens of England in the 1840s, um, muddied the waters by saying that uh, that this Mary grew up and married Edward Bushell. Now, I've recently done a lot of research on Edward Bushell, and it's absolutely impossible for for such a marriage to have taken place. It just doesn't fit anywhere in the family tree or, or chronologically. So the evidence all suggests that poor little Mary Seymour died at two years old. I've done an e-short that accompanies the book about her called The Queen's Daughter. And the other interesting thing about Catherine is her afterlife, the fate of her remains. That is a a, a very complicated and at times really macabre story. And um, I've, I've done another e-short on that. So I've done a lot of research on that. It's called In This New Sepulchre. And both of these are, are linked to the, you know, to, to the, they've been e-shorts for each, um, For for each of the books, and these two are linked to Catherine Parr, and I find these aspects absolutely fascinating.
1: What happened to Thomas Seymour after Catherine died? Well, he tried to marry
2: Elizabeth, and um, she was sort of half and you know she was blowing hot and cold. But I think everybody said you know her ears pricked up every time his name was mentioned. And uh, he, but he tried he he overplayed his hand. He wanted to get the king in under his control. He was resentful of his brother, the Lord Protector, who wouldn't really allow him access. And he, Seymour had established a good relationship with young Edward. He'd sent him money where the protector kept him very short. Uh, one night, he, though, he broke into the royal apartments and he was going to kidnap the king. Literally, he got copy keys, uh, key, keys copied. He was going to you know, abduct the king and the king's dog barked and he shot the dog. And that brought the guards running. I mean, absolutely rash, but the, you know, he sh- it brought the guards running and the king was appalled and he was arrested. And there were about, I think, 30-odd counts of treason were laid against him and he was executed in March 1549. And Elizabeth famously said, this day died a man of much wit but little judgment.
1: So, you just mentioned Catherine's remains. Do we? Is it a case that we don't know where she's buried?
2: Oh, we do know. Yes, she was buried in the chapel in Sudley Castle, now St Mary's Church. It was restored and the Victorians. And um, but her original um, tomb was vandalised and lost in the Civil War of the 17th century. And then. Uh, it, the site of it was lost until in the late 18th century a group of ladies who were fascinated by this. The, in the, in the, in the, this is a new time of the Romantic movement in art and literature. And ruins became very, very popular. And these ladies went to Sudley to try and find the resting place of Catherine Parr. And they saw in a wall of the chapel this 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 slab slab of alabaster. And they thought that that's that's come from a noble tomb, and it could be Catherine Parr. So they just as one does, they got a local workman to come in and dig underneath but bear in mind the chapel's ruinous at this time and he dug into the earth in a very shallow depth he found a lead coffin with an inscription that identified it as Catherine Parr's and uh, several times this coffin was open then the queen the queen's corpse was seen just a bit over the face was seen and it was completely intact for a few moments until of course exposure to the air uh, prompted the process of decay but uh, He, for several, I mean, it was once that happened, the lady sort of recoiled in horror and it was hastily reburied. It was opened several times. And at one awful point, there was a time when the local farmer thought it would be best to, rebury it elsewhere because it was so many people were sort of just having digging up these remains and having a look at them and they were gradually only getting in worse and worse condition so he invited all his friends and neighbours to a a dinner and they all got uproariously drunk and afterwards they went to move the coffin and what did they do they pulled out the 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 remains they danced with them and then they then they, they, they 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 abused them literally I think they cut off the head cut off an arm and stabbed the corpse with an iron bar and then they buried the buried it Upside down, and it wasn't until the nineteenth century. It was open once or twice after that in the early nineteenth in the nineteenth century when the Dent family took over Sudley Castle. They brought in Sir George Gilbert Scott, who rebuilt St Pancras Station, to redesign the chapel and a tomb for Catherine. By then, Catherine's remains had been deposited in an old vault, and by the time they opened it, they would just crumbled to dust. So they are buried in this fine medieval style tomb in Sudley Castle Chapel with a beautiful effigy that's supposed to be based on portraits, but it's not not on any of the ones that have been authenticated today. And it's a beautiful monument so that she is there today. Yes.
1: So what are the challenges of writing historical fiction and how much scope do you have to speculate well, I, I'm being a historian
2: as well, I'm a bit of a purist, so I tend to um, go with the story, use the facts wherever they're there and use my imagination to fill in the gaps or to fill in people's emotions and motives. And sometimes I have gone down the, the inventive route. And where I, do that, where I do that, I explain it in an author's note at the end of the book. Because I do know from doing many, many events and from what the you know emails and posts on social media that people care that what's in a historical novel is pretty close to the truth. And I think it's very important to make it clear what's what's based on history and what is what has been invented. So there's that's one challenge. You know, you have to think what should I go with? And if you're writing a book that's solely from the point of view of the heroine as in these cases I was asked to do, Um, you've got to ask yourself, what did she know? Uh, You know, some some stuff is left out. For example, in writing the Catherine Howard book, she knows nothing of all the interrogations of of the people associated with her. So she's just speculating in the dark. So huge chunks of research were not used for that book because it's only what Catherine would have known. And I had to keep asking myself that all the time. How would she have known this? Could she have known that? So that's been the same for the whole series. And of course, the other big challenge is language, because it's very difficult. I mean, obviously, I want to use original quotes and letters as much as possible. But how do you reconcile Tudor English with, with modern with modern text? So the idea is, is to modify the sources, to, to keep with them, to try as far as possible to stay with, the, with some of the more beautiful turns of phrase, but make sure it doesn't look incongruous. And I'm—I've had very good editors who say you just can't say this. <laughs> so you know, it's um, you you have to make choices all the time when you're writing historical fiction.
1: So for my final question, what is next for you now this series is finished? Are you continuing with fiction?
2: I—I'm—I'm I'm under contract for four more four more novels, but I can't I can't say what they are because they they have yet to be announced. And I've asked my publishers when, and they haven't come back to me yet. They're talking about it. <laughs> So I'm writing the first of them. (laughs) I'm very much enjoying it, but I I wish I could say more, but I can't. But I do, I can say, I can tell you what the first one is. All the e-shorts for this series are going to be published in September in one hardback volume. And it's going to be called In the Shadow of Queens, Tales from the Tudor Court.
1: That sounds great. Do Do you prefer writing fiction to straight history?
2: I enjoy them both now. At one time, I preferred doing the history, but I enjoy writing them both. I think I've relaxed into fiction after 11 books now.
0: (laughs) That was Alison Weir. The final novel in Alison's six Tudor Queen series, Catherine Parr, The Sixth Wife, is on sale now, published by Headline. You can find a buying link in the description of this podcast. And there's a whole lot more on Henry VIII and his wives on our website, historyextra.com. If you're interested in the Tudors, make sure to sign up for our Tudors newsletter to get the latest news articles and podcasts. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash newsletters. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben at, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.